He has risen. He has risen indeed. He has risen. He has risen to reign. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark, to the 13th chapter. In Mark, we've been marching through the book of Mark. The uh, story of the resurrection for Mark actually comes in chapter 16. Uh, I considered skipping ahead and going ahead to chapter 16, given that it was Easter Sunday, but I decided against it as I was convinced by the fitting nature of chapter 13 for Easter. I think I've mentioned to some of you before that one of the first vexing theological questions for me was around the necessity of the resurrection. My question, a bit juvenile, when something like this, if the, if the death of Jesus offers atonement for my sin, and what keeps me out of heaven is my sin, then why is it necessary that Jesus is resurrected? I'm a little bit embarrassed to go forward publicly and tell you I struggled with that question, but I did. I guess we all have blind spots. I knew that Paul argued forcibly for the necessity of the resurrection. But what, and I certainly was glad that Jesus rose from the dead, but I could not figure out why is it necessary as long as he dies for my sin. Why is it necessary that he rise from the dead? The major missing piece of this for me was a vast misunderstanding of heaven, a vast misunderstanding of the second coming, and much of this is corrected in Mark 13. So I'm praying that Mark 13 will help us as we think about what it means, what the resurrection means, and what it means in particular for the future for us. I'm hoping we will appreciate the story of the resurrection more. I'm actually going to read the entirety of the chapter, so if you have a Bible, you can look on there. Obviously, also, we will be, we'll have it on the screen. This is a difficult chapter. Some consider it one of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture. Um, so if you're hoping for Easter fluff this morning, I'm sorry. Um, you have got yourself some, some deep stuff here in this chapter. But uh, we trust that God's Word will prove true. Let me read uh, for us. Mark 13, verse 1. As He came out of the temple, this is Jesus. Remember, this is days before His crucifixion. As He came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These these are the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, 
And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you, should, what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created to now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is a Christ, or look, there He is. Do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all the things beforehand. Verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Verse 28, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know its summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near. At the very gates, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 32, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, to you all, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we just thank You that we are allowed to be counted among those that can gather to worship on Easter Sunday. 
It's an amazing thing to think that our brothers and sisters across the globe have already gathered to celebrate in many different uh, uh, nations, in many different tongues, Lord, to celebrate that Christ Jesus has risen from the grave. Father, I pray this morning that You will make clear to us that Your Son has risen and He has risen to reign. I pray that we would be a people who would be ready. I pray that we would be a people who would be uh, always vigilant. I pray, Lord, that we would be awakened, Lord, this morning. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who does not believe, if there's anyone here who has not trusted Christ with all their heart and with all their soul, that this morning, Father, You would save, that You would count them among your chosen. Lord, we pray for that. We believe that you can do that. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Bless the hearers of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Offering a very helpful piece in the Wall Street Journal this week, Londoner Sarab Amari, he summarized the news stories across 10 consecutive days stretching from Sunday, March 13th through Tuesday of this week. I want you to hear his summary. On Sunday, March 13th, jihadists fired on sunbathers in a resort town of the the Ivory Coast, leaving 16 people dead. On Monday, March 14th, Palestinians carried out a series of terrorist attacks in Israel. On Tuesday, March 15th, Al-Qaeda kidnapped three aid workers in Somalia. On Wednesday, March 16th, a pair of female suicide bombers blew themselves up in Nigeria, killing 24 people. On Thursday, March 17th, an Israeli soldier was stabbed in a West Bank terrorist attack. On Friday, March 18th, terrorists attacked a gas facility in Algeria. On Saturday, March 19th, a bomb was detonated in a shopping district in Istanbul, leaving four dead and 39 others wounded. Hours later, a mortar mortar assault was carried out at a checkpoint in Egypt, killing 15 policemen. On Sunday, March 20th, terrorists attacked a military base in Somalia, leaving at least one person dead. On Monday, March 21st, Islamic fighters attacked a hotel in Mali. And then on Tuesday, March 22nd, the deadly attacks in Brussels that left 34 dead and the numbers expected to rise as there are hundreds wounded and dozens critically wounded. That is 10 days, consecutive days, in our world. Unless you live under a rock, or in a drug-induced high, you cannot escape the fact we live in a dangerous, violent world. And I ask you this question, how is that okay? Every worldview has to grapple with that question. How is this okay? As it does for every worldview, The evil nature of our world poses very tough questions, and it does for Christians as well. What I'm hoping you see is the Bible doesn't run from this. The Bible doesn't hide itself from this. The Bible speaks plainly about this, and you're going to see Jesus set this forth in Mark 13. Jesus 
has already prepared us for days like these. In Mark 13, hours before Jesus would endure the most heinous, unjust crime in all of history, He speaks about how we can understand such violence. He gives us a lens through which we can look at. So let's start there together with verse 1. As He came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. (laughs) These two verses cue up the whole rest of the chapter. They are extraordinary. Now, in in terms of verse 1, it actually needs very little explanation to the original audience as no one needed convincing as to the grandeur and the wonder of Herod's temple. This temple built by Herod was massive. It encompassed one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. You could fit 12 football fields inside of this facility. It was built with massive stones, some of them 50 feet, over 50 feet long, some of them weighing over 1 million pounds. This is before the days of cranes and bulldozers. The columns were so thick, it took three grown men joining arms to be able to encircle their arms around a single column. The retaining wall was 15 stories high. And while construction had commenced on this some five decades, a half century earlier, it was still not finished at this moment in time when Jesus was speaking. Once you understand the vast nature of the temple... Then you understand the extraordinary nature of Jesus' claim when He predicts that not one stone of this structure will be left on top of the other. Imagine, then say the year 1990, someone stood at the feet of the World Trade Center and said, Soon, Not one stone of these buildings will remain on top of the other. Can you imagine what our reaction to that person now that we live on the other side of what happened to those buildings would be? We would just be astonished that someone could have said that ahead of time. In fact, we would want to know what their involvement is to it. But Jesus predicted this. To understand this, you have to understand. You have to understand what happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Only a few decades after Jesus utters these words. Let me tell you. There is a Jewish revolt about taxes. I guess it's like the Jewish Tea Party. Um, There's a revolt over Roman taxes. And as a result, then General Titus, who would later become emperor, he came and he besieged the city to conquer Jerusalem. It was a horrific, heinous scene. The Romans blocked all food and all water going into the city. People were eating anything in sight 
and they were dying by the thousands a day. It is said that the pile of corpses inside the city grew over a hundred thousand corpses high of people who had died of starvation. Some daring souls were desperate enough to flee. The Romans were waiting on the outside. There they crucified five hundred a day. Sometimes the Romans would toy with them. When they'd run out, they would let them have a feast of bread. Give them all the bread they wanted. Knowing that their bodies were in such shock from starvation that that amount of food hitting their stomach that quickly would cause them a gruesome death. At the end of the siege, the Romans utterly destroyed the temple. They burned it to the ground. The Jewish historian Josephus said, not one stone was left on another. Today, to date, this stands is one of the cruelest, most heinous acts in human history. Josephus tells us that over one million Jews lie dead at the end. That Jesus predicted that. <laughs> Not only the felling of the temple, but the tribulation surrounding it should be enough that He would be remembered in history forever. Again, had someone made a prediction like this prior to 9-11, we would be beside ourselves to understand how He could know that. I ask you to consider this account that you're about to read, told decades prior to when this happened, and I ask you, can you conclude anything else except for the fact that Jesus is God. Verse 3, as He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John, and this time they have Simon's brother Andrew, ask Him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus just looks at them and tells them that the, the temple's coming down. What's your next question going to be? Same one, right? When? Right? When? That's exactly what they, they ask. They're now at the Mount of Olives. They have a perfect view of the temple. Mark is very careful to make sure we know that they can see the temple because that's the focus right now. One of the difficult things that you're going to find about the chapter is that Jesus intentionally mixes the foretelling of what's going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple with the foretelling of what's going to take place at the end of the age, at the second coming. I think most of the chapter, aside from a few verses, are focused on preparing the first century Christians for the fall of Jerusalem. But you'll notice that most of his teaching is focused not on the details, but on the, disp the, the disposition of the followers as they wait. In other words, Jesus is more focused on teaching His disciples how to wait. And as such, you're going to find this is relevant teaching for you and I today because it teaches us how do we wait for the return of Christ. Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in My name saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. So the disciples ask Him when, 
And Jesus doesn't answer the question straightforward. Instead, he warns them about being deceived about false messiahs. And he was right to warn them because the first century was ripe with false messiahs. In fact, it was some of the false messiahs that caused much of the problem in the siege of Jerusalem as many were claiming, just hold on, just hold on, I'll take care of this. So Jesus warns him about that. Then verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. It must take place, but the end is not yet. Again, instead of giving the disciples details on the timing, he teaches them how to wait. He tells them, you're going to hear of wars. You're going to hear rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. All of these will take place before Jerusalem falls. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Disciples would actually see this fulfilled with just within hours because we know that on the hour of which Jesus died, what hits Jerusalem? But an earthquake. There was a lot of political and military upheaval prior to A.D. 70. That's to put it mildly. If you read the accounts of what happened between A.D. 40 and A.D. 70 in that area. And there was quite a bit of famine. All of this, Jesus says, are signs that this fall of this city is coming. Verse 9. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before the governors and kings for my sake and bear witness before them. But the gospel must be proclaimed first to all nations. When they bring you to the trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say. What... But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Spirit. And brother will deliver brother. Such sad language. Father is child. Children rise against parents. Have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures will be saved. He's already told them, don't be deceived. He's already told them, don't be alarmed. And now he says, be on Guard. From the time of, the, of his teaching till the siege of Jerusalem, he says they will be beaten, they will be arrested, and they'll be put on trial multiple times. He tells them that their families will turn on them. He tells them that the families of others will turn on one another. He promises them help, the help of the Spirit. And yet, very importantly, Squeeze right in the middle of that, we get this promise about the gospel. But the gospel must first what? Go out where? To all nations. And ever, if that was fulfilled from the years of 8033 uh, to 8070, more than they could have ever known, those guys were involved in seeing the gospel go out to all the nations of that area. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okie dokie. So Jesus uses a rather obtuse reference to the book of Daniel here about the abomination of desolation. And Mark even picks that up with a parenthetical note. Let the reader understand. It's important that you're aware of some of the events in the year, around the year of, uh, or during the second century B.C., so about 200 years prior to when Jesus is on the scene. 
At that time, Jerusalem was under Greek rule, and there, uh, technically, the Seleucids. Again, the Jews revolted. And this time, uh, the Seleucid leader Antiochus IV, or Antiochus of Epiphanes, he came and attacked the city. He slaughtered many of the Jews. And he, uh, he had an act of supreme desecration as he takes a pig into the Jewish temple and slaughters the pig on the altar in the temple. Back in Daniel. Close to 400 years before any of that would happen, Daniel tells us exactly what's going to happen. In fact, I, I encourage you, go read Daniel 9 through 12. You will be amazed at how close Daniel's account is to exactly what happens. And Jesus is saying that this prophecy in Daniel of an abomination of desolation while fulfilled by Antiochus IV offering the pig on the altar, will be further fulfilled when the Romans come and burn the temple all the way to the ground. And he's telling his disciples, whatever you do, as these things unfold, don't wait. Get out. He continues the warnings, telling them, flee the city. Verse 15, let no one who's on the housetop, sorry, let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. In other words, don't wait around. Get out. Verse 17. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Typically, the image of a mother nursing is serene and it's peaceful. And Jesus says it will be a terrible sight during this type of devastation. He describes scenes that are beyond comprehension and adds that if God had not been kind enough and merciful enough to cut it short, it would be much worse. Verse 21, If anyone says to you, Look, here's a Christ, or look, there He is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible elect, but be on guard. I have told you this beforehand. In other words, I've warned you, I've warned you. Jesus warns the people. Again, don't be fooled by a false Messiah. Don't believe them. Alright, now we take a turn in verse 24. If, uh, if, if you need um, a, some encouragement, uh, this, this will have a little bit more to do with us than you might have felt the other did. Here we go. But in those days, after that tribulation... So you can see that there's a turn in the language. We get now those days and we get after that, pointing back to what happened in AD 70, that tribulation. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see. 
the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So here we are told of cosmic change. This change comes when the Son of Man will come with power and with glory. We call it the second coming. Jesus came the first time is in, in flesh as a baby. The first time He came as a suffering servant. The second time He comes as a conquering king, a mighty warrior. At that time, the angels will be sent out. And the elect will be gathered from all across the world. This world, like Jerusalem in A.D. 70, will be besieged and destroyed. Now, I know you're in church, we use religious language, it's just so easy to let that pass off your... Just hear what is said by Jesus, out of the Bible. This world, and everything in it, is going to be besieged and destroyed. And God will rebuild this world. He's going to rebuild it with a new heavens and a new earth. The elect will inhabit this dwelling and enjoy God completely as the Son of God will finally reign supreme. And those who are not the elect will endure a harsh, perfectly just wrath God. This was the major blind spot in my theological question about the necessity of the resurrection. If there is not a resurrection, there is no conquering king. If there is no conquering king, there is no heaven. For some reason or reasons, I mistakenly thought of heaven as a disembodied existence where we just chilled. I honestly was only slightly enthusiastic about the whole idea. I mean, I liked it compared to the alternative, don't get me wrong. But if you read the Bible, you will see that my view is wholly mistaken. The promise of the Scripture is God will judge the earth. Every wrong deed, every sin of commission or omission, every disease, every plight of man will be judged. Not one stone will be left. And then God is going to make for His children a brand new life. Now, my question was a fair question, but my thinking was incredibly flawed. If Sunday comes and Jesus is still in the grave, there is no king to besiege the fallen world. There is no warrior to conquer our crisis. There is no one to lead the effort to build a new world. And there is no one to gather the children of God. To quote Paul, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But Paul continues, but in fact Christ has been raised for the dead, for He must reign until He's put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But when all things have been placed under Christ's rule, then He Himself, the Son, will place Himself under God and God will rule completely over all. Brothers and sisters, Jesus our brother is not simply a ticket into heaven because there literally is no heaven without Jesus. 
He is at the center of it. Listen to John in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And in the city there was no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Christ Jesus is the temple in the coming kingdom. And He is what allows us to dwell with God. He is the sun and He is the moon of the new heavens and the new earth. Now folks, you don't have to know much about science to know that if in our solar system, key word there being solar, which means sun, in our solar system, if the sun disappears for a nanosecond, everything is gone. I mean, it's lights out and it ain't coming back up. It is gone. In the new heavens, in the new earth, if Jesus disappears for a second, it is over. It burns bright and it burns perfect because Jesus Our Lord has risen to reign. But only for those who dwell there. Friend, if you're here and you are not a committed follower of Jesus, then can I plead with you to wait no longer. He may return at any moment. And when He does, all people will either be part of those besieged and destroyed because of their sin, or they'll be part of those gathered to enjoy life like we have never dreamed. The Gospel, the good news is the amazing story that when Jesus died on the cross, the Father besieged Him and ravished Him with His anger over our sin. As Jesus died in agony, His death, Killed, destroyed the power over sin on our lives once and for all. And when He walked out of the grave, He walked out with a deed in hand for a home for every one of His children in the coming kingdom. I invite you. I urge you. Please seek out any member of this church. Seek out any pastor. And say, I want to know more about that good news. I want to enjoy that kingdom. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know the summer's near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. I think he's returning now to the siege of Jerusalem. And he's telling his disciples that you can conclude from a budding tree, the spring is near. Or as I conclude, allergies and mowing. But anyway, 
He tells them that the destruction of the temple occurs will occur within the generation of those standing there. And then we get this amazing contrast in verse 31. Remember Jesus, He's standing, looking over the temple. Unlike the temple, which appeared massive and immovable, but would soon be utterly destroyed, the words of Jesus, which seemed humble and quite odd at the time, would never pass away. Heaven and earth, they will be destroyed. But the words of our Lord will never pass away. Verse 32, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Oh man, a lot of help in Christian history could be helped with that. Let me say that one more time. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. If you have a book at your house that tells you that it knows, burn it. Alright, not even the angels in the heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know the time, when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, what I say to you about the, the fall of Jerusalem, I say to all Christians forever, stay awake. Jesus concludes by saying, no one knows, not even the Son knows. So if you're watching that late night TV preacher and he's giving you predictions about something that's going to happen in the next coming months. He is claiming to be smarter than Jesus. Turn him off. It always amazes me that the argument goes something like this. The end is coming. You don't need your money. But some reason, that preacher always seems to need your money. Anyway, <laughs> instead of guessing and figuring, we, we should live. This is what Jesus is saying. Live with a sense of expectancy and readiness. Stay awake. Because the idea, the disposition of being awake is where disciples thrive. One of the interesting things, this has blown historians away for years, about the siege of Jerusalem, is that in those over one million who died, very, very few were Christians. Now that's interesting because the reason that is so deadly is when the the Romans begin coming across the the countryside and the hillside, you don't run outward. No, because you have no idea what's out there. You think your best game is to get into the city where you can have other people to help defend you. When the Romans came, starting somewhere around AD 67... Christians don't run to Jerusalem. Christians run out of Jerusalem. Why? Because they believed what Jesus said. They were obedient and they were saved. Friends, we live in a broken, dangerous, and volatile world. The 20th century was birthed with amazing optimism that mankind 
could overcome our savage ways and war would, would be a thing of the past. It was believed at the turn of the century that because of our intellect through scientific progress, we might be able to finally tame this old broken world. Yet by the mid-20th century, that theory was left vapid and defeated. Instead, such optimism was mugged by reality as history witnessed the horrific carnage created by mixing modern science and man and the evil of mankind. While our ability to predict earthquakes and storms has gotten maybe a little better, our progress in preventing it has not. Furthermore, our advancements in food production and preservation have been profound in the last century. Last year alone, five million children died of starvation. There are still wars. And there are rumors of wars. There are earthquakes. And there are famines. We should never grow accustomed to the evil, violence, or brokenness. And we had better never grow numb to it. But we must not be alarmed either. Let us not be doubtful of God's sovereign hand, but let us be assured that the end is near. The King is coming soon. Let us live forever change that the empty tomb left a King waiting, just waiting for the order to go conquer, to go secure His kingdom once and for all. If you recall in in verse 10, Jesus tells the disciples that, that prior to the siege of Jerusalem, the gospel must first go be proclaimed in all nations. It was actually their dedication to those words by Jesus that brought them the very hardships He told them that would become them. It also sets forth the priority of how we wait for our Lord. We don't just huddle up and hang on. We don't just seek to stay righteous and good. Instead, we work together to see the gospel go forth in and through our families, to our children, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and to all the tribes and tongues. I think the main point of this chapter can be found in Jesus' words, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall never pass pass away. Jesus was working to prepare first century Christians for a looming disaster. And inasmuch as His words proved perfectly trustworthy and saved so many of them, so also His promise about His second coming can be fully trusted. Brothers and sisters, Our Lord has risen. He has risen to reign. As such, we have purpose, we have hope, and we have a King. Happy Easter, church. He has risen. He has risen indeed. He has risen. He has risen to reign. Let's pray.